So we're in the book of Revelation, as you well know. We will be in chapter 16 this morning. But in chapter 15, uh, John is given a vision. And this time he looks into the heavens and he sees seven angels that will be employed by God. And these seven angels are in the very presence of God to the extent that there's smoke that represents the manifestation of God's glory. So they are in the hub. They are in the epicenter of the throne room and the presence of God. And God gives each of these angels a bowl. And each of these bowls is a wrath. It is a representation of His fury. And it will be dished out or poured out upon earth and mankind one by one. As I mentioned last week, chapter 15 is kind of a short introduction to chapter 16. And today we will be in chapter 16. And with this in mind, I want to draw our attention to three uh, points in this chapter. That is, first we're going to look at the nature of God's judgments. Then we're going to look at the nature of the recipients, those who are under or receiving God's judgments. And then we will look at the reasons for God's judgments. And we're going to cover the whole chapter. Chapter 16, 21 verses, we will prevail. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple, telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died That was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard another one saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Well, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, And its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty verse 15 behold I am coming like a thief 
Blessed is the one who stays awake, keep, keep, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and the great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. In each of John's visions, uh, we see series of sevens. God unleashes His wrath in a series of seven judgments and each judgment takes us closer and closer to the final conflict. And we'll read about it. Then we see where Evil begins to rise again. There's judgment. And then throughout the history of mankind, evil will rise its head again. Darkness will rise again. It will periodically be judged. And then evil will advance. And we often get the impression as we witness this with our own eyes and lives that the life and the world will just continue to go on like this. Sometimes life is better than others. Some days are better than others. Sometimes there's oppression upon the world in a darkness and sometimes it seems like there's hope and everything is going to turn or turn out okay and we think that perhaps this is the way it will be forever and ever but now we read this passage and we see that the cycles will end this is the culmination in chapter 15 it's in the atmosphere or the context of the worshiping saints We read about the saints and and the creatures of heaven that are loudly singing their praise to the Lord. They are worshiping Him with all their hearts and minds. And so as the praise goes forth, it is then that out of the temple come these seven angels with the wrath of God. As always, things are centered around the throne room of God. Revelation begins with one of the first visions in heaven with the Lamb on the throne. The throne is the epicenter of all things. All commands come from the throne of God because God has all power and all authority over all things. Everything that happens, happens because of the command and the authority that God has from the throne. And it remains His command center for all that exists. As we read chapter 16, I'm sure that um, some of things that you've read previously in Scripture pop up. There are some similarities in these plagues. There's some similarities in these plagues with the plagues that report out from the seven trumpets. But the difference is that in those plagues it was a third of this or a fourth of this or a third of this. And this, these plagues are all of mankind. Everybody, the whole world, the whole earth is affected by this. And the initial judgments a lot of times had to do with uh, natural calamities. Uh, earth itself was cursed and, and felt the wrath of God. And now we see that it's mankind under the fury and the wrath of God. 
This book confirms what the Scriptures say from beginning to end. And that is when it gets down to it, all of the complexities and the things that happen in life, all of man's plans, dreams, and actions are under the sovereign rule of God. He controls the physical realms. He controls the spiritual realms. And we need to know this. And I think that this is written in this way for us. Revelation is written for the church. And it is written so that we can take heart, that we can take a stand, that we don't give up, that we don't run, that we don't hide. Because we know that no matter how things, no matter uh, what turn or direction things take in this world, we serve a God who is in absolute control. He knows all that will come to pass. He knows our own hearts. And He has promised to us that no matter what we see, no matter what we feel, and no matter how bad life hurts sometimes, He will get us through. Because it's the same power that we're reading about that brings wrath and destruction that also preserves and brings grace and newness of life. It's a good reminder for us to always put our hope in God and to not put our hope in the things of this world. So what can we learn from our text today? First of all, the nature of God's judgments. That's one of the centers of this revelation. So not only are there similarities in these judgments with the previous judgments in the book of Revelation, but we also see a few similarities as we read this with judgments that we read in the book of Exodus when God judged the Egyptians for holding his people captive in the days of Moses. So we've read some similar things. And we know when we read Exodus, we read about uh, water that turns into blood, rivers that turns into blood, the livelihood that they needed there. God judged them for their sin. And there's a pattern that takes place. It took place early on in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and it carries out throughout Scripture even to the book of Revelation, to the very end. In Exodus, the way that God dealt with His his people, his chosen people, and the way that God dealt with his enemies, those that rebelled against him, is kind of the same. So he promises his power to deliver his people, but at the same time, he uses that same power to uh, oppress his enemies, to call his enemies to the carpet. He deals with his people like this. So he judges his enemies. So we see this pattern, this framework that while God delivers His people, He also judges His enemies. Uh, Deuteronomy 7 is a great example. It's too long to read in its entirety, but let me just read a couple of verses out of this so that we get this idea of how God works. And the Lord will take away, verse 15, Deuteronomy 7, 15, the Lord will take away from you He's talking to his chosen people, all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew, will he inflict on you, but he will lay them all on those who hate you. So you see the deliverance of God, you see the judgments of of God. And then verse 18, you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. So this kind of pattern here, the way God deals with humanity is something that we should remember. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out 
so will the Lord your God do to all the people of whom you are afraid. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. So God has this plan. And in the period of the Exodus, it's this framework that we see and it's worked out throughout Scripture and it lands even in Revelation where not only is God simultaneously delivering His people, but He's judging His enemies. And that's how the world comes to an end. So what does this teach us about the nature of God's wrath? First of all, uh, Scripture is replete with describing God's wrath as absolutely holy. God's wrath is holy. It's perfect. His decisions as a judge are impeccable. His moral judgments are absolutely righteous. Verse 5, I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you. As the wrath is being poured out, they're looking at the nature of God. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. So heaven, while the, while the judgments are poured out, heaven is just praising and worshiping and celebrating the righteousness of what is taking place under the hand of God. And I can't help but to compare this with many times how we on earth think about God's wrath and think about God's judgment. It's not always with such enthusiasm. As a matter of fact, sometimes we question it. Sometimes we might, be, we might be tempted to measure God's or judge God's measurement of morality and judgment. And we might think, well, you know, what is this that man did to deserve such wrath, such judgment, such fury? Uh, aren't you just carrying this a little too far? God, aren't you going a little overboard as you pour out your judgments on this earth and we witness and feel the pain and the calamity of it? Do you sometimes maybe lose your cool a little bit? In all of this, this is absolutely dreadful. And yet, biblical thinking says, God, everything you do, it is so right. It feels so good. It's so just. It's so righteous. It's so perfect. And how heinous man's sin must be for you to pour your wrath out. Do you see the difference? So rather than questioning the morality of God's judgments, which is what we are often tempted to do, heaven is like, what's wrong with you, man, that you would sin so badly against such a righteous, holy God? That's what's not right with this picture. It's not that God has lost his cool. It's that not that God has gone overboard. It's that God is doing exactly what needs to be done based on how you have treated him. And how you view Him in your heart and mind. And how blind we must be and how sad it is that we do not see it like that as we should. Scripture sees it in 15.3. Great and amazing are your deeds. Just and true are your ways for your righteous acts have been revealed. 
16.7 again, And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So his judgments are right in line with his character. His judgments are, are overflow, or an outpouring of exactly how he has revealed himself throughout Scripture. It's in perfect harmony with his grace and his love and his heart of forgiveness. He's a just God. He's a holy God. He is perfectly consistent. He's true. Through and through, he's true. There's no error in him. There's no fault. He never veers a little bit off to the left or the right. Everything that he does is dead on the mark. It is man that falls short of the degrees. We're the ones that consistently stray to the left and to the right. And so heaven sees that the punishment fits the crime. Absolutely, perfectly. For they have sinned, shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And we can't help to consume our minds many times with God, do I really deserve this? The way that life has turned out? Do I really deserve this? Sometimes I question God's goodness at just the slightest little ailment. Isn't it amazing how we take our health for granted? You just lose one little part of it and all of a sudden you can't you have to have a bandage on your thumb and you can't even button your buttons or tie your tie and life is just, oh, so miserable, so terrible. But God can take all of these motives of man, take all the actions and the deeds of man, all of the complex information. He can look at all the facts and He can just put it all together flawlessly and met out the perfect judgment and punishment. He's able to assess things like that. We're not. We're not so good at being able to do that. As a matter of fact, in order for us to even try to met out justice and, and make the punishment meet the crime, our court systems, a lot of times we have juries there. We have trial by peers because we want as many eyes and minds thinking about this as we can in case one set of eyes misses something, maybe the, the other will catch it. So we can try to see everything from every conceivable angle. And we have learned, I think, from history, but also from the Westerns that I grew up watching, that when you have just one man in charge of everything, your town's in trouble. If he's the sheriff and he's the judge and he's the jury, that power's going to go to his head and your town is in trouble. And yet we come to Scripture and we find the man, Jesus Christ, who can keep all of this power and all these abilities within Himself and come out with an absolutely perfect judgment. He can handle it. He can see it. He knows it all, as we reminded in Hebrews this morning with our offering Scripture. It's the Holy Trinity. Holy Trinity. Man is not sufficient. God is sufficient. He is the perfect man. His judgments are indisputable. This is why we get this response in Revelation. We got this response back in Revelation 6, 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and his generals and the rich and the powerful and every slave 
and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the Lamb of God. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? How can we defend ourselves against this great judge? We have nothing to stand upon because we are guilty. Romans 3.19 puts it this way, which I like even better. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. It's just evidence of man's sinfulness that we think that we could escape the wrath of God or escape the sovereignty of God or we can have our own religion or do things our own way and come up with our own narrative and our own story of where we came from and where we're going. And yet all the time, we're accountable to God. His standard doesn't change. What He reveals is right and true and it will never change. Who can stand against this? Who can speak against this? The whole world stands condemned. And God stands able to judge. So we see the nature of God's judgments. They're righteous, they're holy, they're pure, and they're true. What about the nature of those that receive the judgment of God? What about man? Well, if we are judged by God, it's because obviously we deserve it. We did something to deserve it. If God is that holy then we deserve it. And if we deserve it, it's because our nature has gone astray. Our nature has fallen. We've rebelled against Him. We've fallen short time and time again of what His law and commandments require. And this is why the world has to go. We constantly fall short. We constantly fall short of God's glory, of God's standards, and there will come a time will God, when God will end that and make it right. But the world is fading away. It's got to go. There's not, there's not room enough in the end for the two. 1 John 2, 15-7 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, it has to go. It cannot remain because God is a holy, glorious God. And so, yeah, the world does fade away and the world is falling apart in that sense. The ungodly, unfortunately, Uh, have chosen to trust in the world, to seek tremendous strength in the world, to find their hope in the world, to chase after the things that the world offers them, to try to stuff as much of the world as they can into their hearts to get their uh, souls at a place of satisfaction. They turn to the world and at the same time or concurrently reject the God, the only God that can satisfy the heart and soul because this is the God That created it. Trusting in something unreliable. Building our lives upon the sand. And time and time again it crumbles. It's elusive. And so we chase after something else. Oh wait a minute. Wasn't this after all. It's this that I needed in my life. And that doesn't deliver. No we need this in our lives. 
and that doesn't deliver. All the time rebelling against the voice of God that proclaims, come, all you who are thirsty. You're seeking after this. You're drinking everything that people put in front of you. Come to me. What we should be obviously chasing after is God. And when we don't love God, as we should, then judgment comes. And there's this sense in which the whole creation was fabricated that it is absolutely wrong for any inch of creation not to bring glory to its creator. His creator, its creator is that good. And it's just wrong and therefore is deserving of God's wrath. In verses 10 through 16, we see this wrath poured out on Satan and his kingdom and all of the darkness that uh, the unholy trinity or the trinity of darkness that we have been learning about, the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. And we see that during this time, demons are released to tempt and to lure people into their plan and into their kingdom. And it's during this time that it's, it's described that the river Euphrates dries up and it dries up so that now there's no longer a barrier for the kings to come. They've been deceived by these spirits to desire to battle against God. And now they can come and gather in such a way to create this or to gather at the battlefield because the river Euphrates has been dried up and it gave them safe passage. And behind all of this, the river of Euphrates is dried up from the hand of God. God dries this river up so that the kings can gather in one place and battle against them. Because that way, though they think that they're exactly where they need to be, they are actually exactly where God desires them to be. This happened in real life, by the way, in, in the Old Testament. Uh, king Cyrus of the Persians conquered the Babylonians. God warned the, Babylon, the king of Babylonia that this would happen. But one of the ways that he was able to defeat the Babylonian kingdom, which everybody thought was undefeatable, was that he had his men uh, dredge out um, ditches so that the water would drain out of the river. And when it happened, then he, could, he had safe passage with his army across this river so that he could defeat the Babylonians, are act, and he actually assimilated them into his kingdom. And that's exactly what happened. God warned the king of Babylon that this would happen. And he said, because of your pride and because of your, your, your refusal to give me the glory for the position that you are in, as he sits on top of the world with his kingdom, he said, because of that, you will be judged in this way. The kings will come against you. And that's exactly what happened. But in all of this, we see that God ordains the world's events. Now, we can't always put the pieces of the puzzle together, and it's hard. But God, knowing this alone, God ordains world events. He leads people to their own destruction. He allows people to do what their hearts desire to do. And the result is often wrath. And so we have pictures of people following each other, kings and and, uh, commanders, and they're making uh, plans to battle against God. They're coming together in this picture as if it's the fight of the lifetime. 
It's a worthy cause. I'm sure very, very convinced of their scheme and their plan and the importance of how it is to rid the world of God to defeat Him one last time because they love the world, remember? They put all their hope in the world and when you try to take an idol from somebody, you're going to get a fight because we put our hope and our trust in that idol. And so they array themselves. They believe themselves. They believe their own lies. They're deceived. And they, uh, they love to listen to perhaps the local news reports or their favorite influencer or their favorite podcast. The thing they're not listening to is the Word of God that speaks loud and clear to the world. They're on a personal mission to rid the world of them. And it's interesting how this whole scene, even in Revelation, shows uh, the, uh, the mystery of the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God and how they come together somehow. You have man doing exactly what he wants to do and yet the will of man meets the will of God and the will of God is done. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So as we follow our wills, God's will is done. And it's in the midst of all of this fury and all of this judgment. Verse 15, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he might not go about naked and be exposed. And it seems completely out of place. And yet time and time again, we see in the midst of God's fury being poured out, a word to His people, a gentle shepherding word to His people, stay focused. It, it, it can get really bad out there. Stay. I want you to stay focused. They don't listen. They don't know, but you do. You do listen. You do know better. Now, what you don't know is exactly when I'm returning. And therefore, I want you, my people, to be ready. And the way you're ready is to be clothed by the righteousness of Christ. To be clothed by, clothed by the ways of Christ. The Word of Christ and the way of His life. Keep your focus on Him. Don't let the deceivers rob you of your treasure and your reward. Stay awake. This is reminiscent of what we heard in chapter chapter 3. Now you're awake. Hello. So chapter 3, in, uh, he, the, Jesus said this to one of the churches, the church of Laodicea. He says, I advise you to buy from me white garments to clothe yourselves that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. They put their pride in their ability to make the world-class clothing. And that was worthless. Whatever you come up with your own to clothe yourself that the world has to offer will not save you. It's not what is required by God. And He doesn't want His people to be left naked. God gave that same warning, by the way, to Belshazzar, uh, the king of Babylon, when He said, be alert, because if you don't repent, I'm sending the kings. And He did not stay awake, and He was overcome. So this word is for us, as always, to be ready. So we've seen the nature of God the judge. We've seen the nature of his judgments and the nature of our, uh, those that receive the judgment of God. And that is 
God is holy and pure, and His judgments are right, and man is deserving of any judgment that comes from the hand of God. And then lastly, quickly, we'll look at the reasons for God's judgments. Why does He pour such wrath upon man? What is He judging? Well, He's he's judging the idolatry that takes place. He's judging the injustice of uh, those that persecute His people and shed the blood of the saints. Revelation 17.2 With whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And then in verse 6 For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them the blood to drink and it's what they deserve. They bore the mark of the beast and they drank the wine of sexual immorality. And in Scripture, it's not just the sexual immorality, it's not the physical aspect, but more so uh, the spiritual idolatry. Cheating on God, He does not take that lightly. Chasing after other gods, putting our hope in other things. And what has fallen man's response to God's indictment of their actions? In this chapter, verse 9, they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. And then 11, and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. And verse 21, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. So severe. And so we see that when man repents, God pours grace like a flowing river. Forgiveness and grace and restoration when we repent. And when we fail to repent, He pours His wrath like a flowing river because we have clearly been opposed to God. There's no false judgment here. Everything is absolutely deserved to the very end. The wicked are cursing God and His actions against them. So as we consider this chapter and we think about the fury of God, or the bowls or the cups of God's fury. I'm reminded of two things. And that is the two cups. The two cups in Scripture. In verse 19 it says, The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of His wrath. You know, in the Old Testament's, God used His prophets not just to speak to Israel, but to speak to all the nations. He sent His prophets to other nations as well. And He warned them that if they did not repent, they would drink the fury of the cup of God's wrath. So there's this cup that God will pour out upon all those and from every nation that refuse to repent of their sin And give God the glory that He absolutely deserves. Everyone that does not repent will drink of this cup. And we read a little bit about this cup in the previous chapters. We talk about you, you put the wine in the cup and the wine comes from the wine press. And it's the fury of the crushing weight of those that trample the grapes. And it's also the metaphor of God's wrath trampling the wicked. And the blood spills out. And so you have that cup. The cup of Scripture. To those that don't repent. And I can't help but to be reminded of the other cup that we are well acquainted of. 
we're well acquainted with, and we celebrate and we're reminded of this cup every communion Sunday when we come. And these guys that lead us in communion do such a wonderful God, a job of drawing our minds back to the cup and what's in that cup. It's my body that's been broken for you. It's my blood that's been poured out for you. And so we're offered another cup. We have this cup to those that don't repent, but we have this cup of grace from Jesus Christ. And it's this cup that if we drink of this cup, it's a cup that represents that that same weight and that same fury and that same wrath has already been poured out on God's Son, Jesus Christ. He has been crushed. He he drank that cup down to its very dregs. The last drop of the wrath of God has been satisfied in Christ. And when we put our faith in Him and we repent of our sins, we get to drink of that cup But we don't drink of the wrath because Christ took that for us. We drink of the blessings of God. So, in in essence, when you read Scripture, life comes down to the two cups. Which one will we drink? Will we drink the one where we receive the wrath of God because we have not repented and done what we know in our conscience is right? We've stayed rebellious. Or will we drink... The cup of God's blessing through Jesus Christ. Which one will we drink? Which one are we drinking from now? I love Psalm 23. I pray it every night. And uh, there's a part where it says, "You, you anoint my head with oil. And then the psalmist says, my cup overflows. And it's the cup of grace. And we know it's the cup of grace. And he realized that God is pouring blessing in his cup because he says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He has that, that right standing with God because of the blessing in the cup that he looked forward to that was satisfied. in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we gather every, every Sunday to worship, whom we gather every Sunday to praise and exalt. This is what I want for all of us. How could I not? This flock, this kingdom outpost, that we would all give our hearts and minds to Jesus Christ. That we would all drink of that cup of blessing and live before Him and give Him glory to the very end so that we can fellowship with Him again and drink with Him again the marriage supper of the Lamb. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless the preaching of His Word.